Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Eileen. Eileen. The sky over New Mexico is, is amazing. Has anyone here spent much time in the state of New Mexico? It's like Mexico, just newer. Yeah. Now, New Mexico is, the sky uh, in New Mexico is amazing. The sunset, the stars, uh, the clouds. Uh, they have all the same stuff here, but it just looks different there. It looks different in the desert southwest. Shortly after we were married in 1994, Christy and I moved to southern New Mexico to live in what's called the Tularosa Basin, uh, which is situated between the Sacramento Mountains and the Oregon Mountains. Uh, as a brand new aerospace physiology technician, I had been stationed at Holloman Air Force Base uh, to help pilots uh, train in how not to die, basically. <laughs> that was my job uh, as an aerospace physiology tech. I trained pilots and aircrew uh, how to uh, survive in a high G and high altitude flight environment. Sounds pretty cool, and it was. Um, one thing that we loved about living in the high desert and in the mountains uh, was the quality the quality of light. I know some of you here have dabbled in photography and you probably, if you have gotten into photography a little bit, you started noticing good light. Man, good light was around every corner in New Mexico. The quality of light, uh, and I think this was due to the, the clear atmosphere uh, and the, the magical desert hues that uh, would erupt uh, at certain times when the light was just right. As an amateur photographer myself, I was surrounded by that good light all the time. A, magic de a magical desert light falling on things and making ordinary things look extraordinary. Especially during what's called the magic hour. Does anyone know what the magic hour is? It's the hour right before sunset and the hour right after sunrise because the, the sun is low and it's coming through all the atmosphere so it has that really warm orange light. The magic hour, especially during the magic hour before sunrise or after sunrise or before sunset, New Mexico absolutely came alive with an otherworldly orange and golden glow. I remember one assignment for a photography class I was taking at New Mexico State University where I had to uh, at, at, I think it was like every hour or every three hours of the day during the daylight hours, uh, take a picture of an object outdoors just to, just to capture the ways the, the light fell, the temperature of the light and how the light fell on that object. And, and it was beautiful. I, but, but here's the thing, it was New Mexico. I was taking pictures of a traffic cone and it was stunning. The New Mexico light was amazing. <laughs> Even a traffic cone looked pretty great. Anyway. Um, uh, that otherworldly orange and golden glow. Uh, the marvels of the New Mexico sky, however, did not end at sunset. The desert sky at night was also spectacular, dark and deep, with its clear atmosphere, uh, no light pollution, and an endless depth of stars. Have you ever been in, a, in such a remote area, maybe in the desert, maybe in the mountains, where you stopped at night and just looked into the sky and you almost had this vertigo effect? Because there's no light pollution at all. and just You feel like you're falling into forever because the stars just go deeper and deeper and deeper. And as your eyes adjust, it's almost disorienting. Well, this happened a lot in the desert, and I loved it. An endless depth of stars. Those who live long in cities are disoriented and they're, and they're startled 
to see the number and the vastness of the stars in the nighttime desert sky, revealed in their full splendor and not diminished by our electric lights. One time, Christy and I were driving north. We were driving north through the desert at night. I don't remember where exactly we were heading. We were probably driving up to Albuquerque for something or somewhere in Colorado. I don't remember what, but I do remember it was at night. Um, either way, it was, it was late and the sky was clear and the full moon was high in the sky up ahead. You could just see the white mountains uh, outlined against the sky with 12,000 foot high Sierra Blanca off to the right, moonlight falling on her shoulders. Suddenly a bright light, a bright light streaked across the sky, streaked across the sky west to east. A brilliant light illuminating the desert, descending and extinguishing above the horizon with a final flash before disappearing. I remember we both saw it and we were both amazed. We were struck by its radiance. Several minutes later, uh, the road hum and the monotony of the nighttime desert highway took over again and thoughts of that shooting star began to fade. And then suddenly, I saw it. I noticed something arrayed across the sky where the meteorite had traveled, a silver moonlit trail in the high atmosphere. Never before had I seen a meteorite leave a visible scar in the sky. The line of ethereal fumes, whether it was smoke or condensation, I don't know, but there it was lingering in the sky, glowing in the stratosphere. And it remained there motionless, stretched languidly across the expanse until it slowly passed above over our car and faded into the distance behind us. I remember that to this day. That's the only time I've ever seen the trail of where a meteorite had come through the atmosphere shining in the moonlight. The sky has always fascinated us. It's always been an object of curiosity and wonder. Before the advent of artificial lights and things like GPS, the sky held more than fascination for us humans. It also marked our time, it marked our seasons, and it was also necessary for navigation. Millennia of humans have watched and studied and recorded the movements of heavenly bodies to determine calendars and predict future events. Thus, most kings in antiquity employed wise men, wise men better known as astrologers. Astrologers. There was no distinction between an astronomer and an astrologer in antiquity because there was no separation between the natural world and the supernatural world. That's really more of a product of the Enlightenment that we think, oh, there's the real and the not so real. No, it wasn't that, that false divide didn't exist back in these times of which we speak. There was no separation between the natural and the supernatural. There was deep connection. There was a deep correspondence between earth and sky, events in the heavens often signaling and portending events upon the earth. These wise men monitored the sky nightly, keeping kings and rulers abreast of heavenly events and happenings because these heavenly events and happenings, they spoke to, they indicated good fortune. They indicated omens and threats that the king would want to be aware of. And the king of Persia 
one of the mightiest empires in history. The king of Persia was no exception. He employed many wise men called the Magi. And their job was to watch the stars and to notice planetary activity in order to stay on top of events and trends. The dominant religion in Persia at the time of Christ's birth was, does anyone know? Zoroastrianism, right? Zoroastrianism. This is a religion that was founded in the 6th century BC by a prophet named Zoroaster who, who was from what's modern day, called modern-day Iran. Therefore, the Magi were likely Zoroastrians, and they were priests of Ahura Mazda. Ahura Mazda, who was the god of the Persians, which also is the name of the car brand for that reason, Mazda. Yeah, anyone find that interesting? Yeah, <laughs> Mazda cars are named after Ahura Mazda. It's important to notice, these wise men were not Jewish. And they weren't Christian. That would be an anachronism at this point, right? <laughs> they, weren't, they weren't Jewish. They weren't, uh, they weren't Christians at this point. They were pagans from a different culture, a different religion, only distantly familiar with Israel and the happenings in Palestine. Uh, maybe through their uh, ancient historical link to Daniel, during his exile, during his being taken into captivity into uh, the Persian Empire. Maybe they'd heard about Israel. Maybe they'd heard about uh, Abraham and, and the, the, the one true God working through them. Maybe that was their frame of reference. And that's maybe why they were aware. Maybe that's why they were looking. Maybe it was Daniel. There was, but here's what we know. The Magi, the priests of Ahura Mazda from Persia, were not part of God's chosen people at this point. So the story of the wise men we read about in Matthew chapter 2 shows us something of God's heart. We are surprised by something unexpected and reassuring as we read this story of the wise men. In the Magi coming to worship Jesus, we discover the good news of Jesus Christ is for all people, Jew and Gentile. All people, both near and far away. It's not just for the insiders, but for outsiders too. The gospel is for all who will come. That's why it's called good news. Let's read Matthew chapter 2. You can turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, as we read about visitors from the east. Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem, asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah. For a ruler will come from you, who will be the shepherd of my people, for my people Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, Go to Bethlehem, and search carefully for the child, and when you find him, come back and tell me, so that I can go and worship him too. After this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. 
It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary. They bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. I've probably heard this story hundreds of times by now. Maybe you have too. And if you're like me, we risk hearing the Christmas story in the Bible in dreamy, firelit Christmas Eve tones of childhood and of family traditions. And as a result, we can miss out on all the ways that God's salvation plan is breaking into our world and surprising everyone. Surprising everyone, invading the deep murk of our fallenness and turning everything inside out. Because there's a remarkable story playing out right before us. Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah, has come as light in our darkness. Indeed, long lay the world in sin and error pining, till he appeared and the soul felt its worth, a thrill of hope and the weary soul rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. We were all hoping, watching, and waiting for the Son of Righteousness to come, to bring the dawn and to rise with healing in His wings. But Jesus didn't come just to be Israel's deliverer. Jesus didn't come just to be uh, Israel's deliverer and to fill Jewish hopes. Sure, it began there. It began with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But it spread out from there, uh, according to the promise God made to Abraham. Out there, out from there, God desiring to make Israel to be a city on a hill, a light for who? The whole world. A light for the nations. From the outset, God's ultimate desire has been to heal not just Israel, but all people, all the nations. The InterVarsity Press New Testament commentary explains it this way. A microcosm of Matthew's gospel as a whole, this passage, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, reminds us that we must preach the gospel to all people because we cannot always predict who will hear the message and who will not. Those we least expect to honor Jesus may worship him, and those we least expect to oppose him may seek his death. Although the Bible forbade divination, which includes astrology, for one special event in history, the God who rules the heavens chose to reveal himself where the pagans were looking. Do you hear that? God chose to reveal himself where the pagans were looking. Without condoning astrology, Matthew's narrative challenges our prejudice against outsiders to our faith. Even the most pagan of pagans may respond to Jesus if given the opportunity. What a resounding call for the church today to pursue a culturally sensitive yet uncompromising commitment to missions. Jesus is for all who will receive him. And God may provide Jesus' servants with allies in unexpected places if we have the wisdom to recognize them. So, this Christmas Eve, this year, maybe the first time ever, this Christmas Eve, as we prepare to welcome Christ tonight, may we welcome also the gospel imperatives we find in this story. There are two key lessons that we can learn here in the story of the Magi. The first one, God is full of surprises. 
God's full of surprises. His mission includes all tribes and all tongues. It includes the Jew and the Gentile. It includes you and it includes me. The second lesson is he uses his people to help others discover his salvation. So he's full of surprises. <laughs> his mission includes all tribes and tongues. Secondly, he uses his people to help others discover his salvation. Into the very story of God sending a Savior to his chosen people, Israel, he invites outsiders in, sending a signal to these wise men in the east. By aligning Jupiter, so understand this, get a picture of this. The Magi were looking at the night sky, and they noticed that Jupiter each night was moving closer to another planet. It was moving closer to Saturn. And Saturn and Jupiter were converging until suddenly they were almost looked they were like they were on top of each other, double brilliance. And to the Persian Magi, to the Persian wise man, Jupiter represented the king. Jupiter was the king planet. But do you know what Saturn represented? To the Persian, it represented the Jews. So in the convergence of Jupiter and Saturn, there was a message in the nighttime sky that shouted to them in a powerful sentence, the king of the Jews has come. The king of the Jews is born. It is this king that the Magi traversed afar to see, to seek, to worship. This king to whom they brought their gifts to honor and to adore. Also, being led to Bethlehem, though, required more than just those signs in the sky. If you read the story carefully, it got them to Bethlehem. But it didn't like have like an arrow like, look in the manger, you know, look in the stable, or look wherever it was, in the relative's house, wherever they were staying. It got them to Bethlehem, but they required more than just the signs in the sky. Upon arriving in, in Bethlehem, arriving in Jerusalem, the Magi required help from God's people. Did you get that in the story? It got them to Jerusalem, but they needed God's people to help them find the Christ child. The Magi relied upon God's chosen people to direct them toward Jesus, people familiar with God's story, to point them to the little town of Bethlehem. The InterVarsity New Testament commentary, InterVarsity Press New Testament commentary, goes on to explain it this way. Even supernatural guidance like the star can take the astrologers so far. For more specific direction, they must ask the leaders in Jerusalem where the king is to be born. That is, their celestial revelation was only partial. They must finally submit to God's revelation in scriptures in order to find Christ. This Advent season, you and me, we are necessary. We are necessary in the full telling of Christmas. We're necessary to truly and fully tell that story, the full sharing of the good news that has come to us in Jesus Christ. We never know who God is drawing to Himself. We never know by what signs and signals they are being drawn, whether that's in the sky, or it's in relationships, or it's through circumstances. We must be ready. And when they come, be they family, be they friends, co-workers, or strangers, will we help them find Bethlehem? Will we help them find, find Jesus? And will we join with them in worshiping the newborn king? Will we bring our gifts to honor and adore him? I pray that we will. 
I pray that we will, with all those we love, I pray that we will welcome Emmanuel tonight. So my friends, happy, happy Christmas to one and all. Father, hear our prayers tonight. We quiet them, we quiet our hearts, we still ourselves as we pay attention. We tune in, we, we want to notice everything you're doing. We want to enjoy this moment as we recollect, as we remember, as we celebrate this moment, as we acknowledge and as we worship the coming of our newborn King, that we too would eagerly desire to seek Christ uh, on this night and throughout the year. But God, I pray that we would be paying attention, knowing that you're full of surprises, that you desire all to come close and all to worship Jesus, and that you're, you might just be wanting to use us to make that happen. So God, I pray that we'd be sensitive and I pray that we'd be aware of those people in our lives that we could help them find the Christ child. Lord, may we be obedient. May we not just hear the story of Christmas, but may we hear the gospel imperatives that come in the Christmas story. Because of Jesus, everything has changed. And we're a part of that now. So God, may you be glorified through our obedience, through our willingness to be a part of that story, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.